is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And you might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see that we're continuing a series on Nehemiah. And uh, yeah, I just want to start by saying it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, right? Or, or, how crazy is this? Oh my gosh, you guys, um, just point of reference, 50 days until Christmas morning. <laughs> The stress level just went right up to the top. No, behind me. Say, okay, so here's what we want to do. We want to start uh, just by doing a quick uh, way of recap around the series of Nehemiah that we've been in. We've just been walking through the book, and we started by talking about how Nehemiah was serving in the court of the king of Persia, 800 miles away from Jerusalem, when he heard that Jerusalem was still in ruins. It was still in rubble. It was still torn down after 141 years. They'd not been able to rebuild not only the walls, the gates, the temple, their, their homes, their livelihood, their future, all in shambles. And this caused an ache on Nehemiah's heart. He began to pray about it, and in that prayer time with the Lord, God birthed a vision for Nehemiah. So then Nehemiah was able to go act on that vision. He went to Jerusalem, he cast his vision to the people of Jerusalem, and they all rallied around him and said, let us put our hand to this good work. And so they began the process of rebuilding. What we talked about last week was every time there is a good work that's happening for the Lord, there will be opposition to it. And there was an enemy, and the enemy came against the work that Nehemiah was leading. And, and I talked to actually several of you over the course of the week. Now, you've expressed to me that that's exactly how you feel right now, that you feel like there's an enemy coming against you. There's, there's opposition to what it is, the good things that you're trying to do for the Lord. And, and so if you missed that uh, message, please go online and, and, and catch up with us, kind of track through if you've missed any of those messages. What we want to talk about today is found in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them up to chapter 5. Of course, the verses will be on the screen, and they're in your notes as well. Chapter 5, there's an interesting thing that we're going to see Nehemiah has to deal with. But to begin, I just want to recap this week, just so we're all... uh, Halloween happened just a few days ago. And, and Halloween, I, I don't know if any of you are, you've got kids, so you're dressing your kids up in cute little cow costumes and all this, like that's wonderful. Or if you're an adult and you like Halloween and, and you might need, you know, therapy, uh, there, there are these other uh, things, right, going on. But here's the thing, I, I, my son, my youngest, was able to go trick-or-treating this week. He went with a friend, and the friend's family ended up taking the boys to another neighborhood, not the neighborhood that we lived in, but this other neighborhood, and there was strategy involved. And I just bring this up because it reminded me of when I was a kid, my friends and I, we would, we would talk about strategy of Halloween all year long. And you know what we were looking for, right? You know we were looking for large homes close together. Because what we wanted is we wanted not only the idea of knocking on the most amount of doors as possible, we wanted the most chocolate available per door. And so what we would do is we'd be riding our our bikes around during the course of the year. We'd come into a new neighborhood and we'd be like, oh yeah, this is a full-size neighborhood right here. Right? I lived in a fun-sized neighborhood myself, where the candy was all fun-sized. But, but you'd come into some of these, oh, you'd be like, oh, this is a king-sized hood right here. 
And, and that would make you excited. And what were we looking for? We were looking for a way to exploit the opportunities, right? As kids, we wanted to glut ourselves on as much candy as possible. That's normal. It's healthy American childhood right there. Uh, but, but there was an additional element to it, right? The additional element was that there was a thrill that came from getting as much candy as possible. <laughs> I love you, man. So segue to what Nehemiah has to deal with in Jerusalem. Because there were people in Jerusalem who had figured out how to exploit the reality of Jerusalem. And unfortunately, it was the people in power who had figured out how to exploit and oppress those without power. Now remember, everything was broken down and there was very little hope and future, but those who were able to began to oppress those who were unable to resist. And what you see Nehemiah doing is you see Nehemiah being aware of an injustice and immediately coming up to stand for those who were being oppressed. If you're filling in the blanks, the example that Nehemiah sets, he defends the oppressed and the impoverished. And this is what we see as we jump into chapter 5 of Nehemiah. We'll start in verse 1. Uh, it says, uh, Nehemiah's writing, he says, About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. They were saying, We have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, We have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, We've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. And a couple verses later, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke out against those nobles and officials, Nehemiah says. And as you look at the chapter of, uh, of 5 in Nehemiah, you'll see it can be split into two. The first half of the chapter, Nehemiah is dealing with this issue of how the officials and the noblemen were able to continue to squeeze the impoverished. They were able to extend oppression and so benefit themselves. And what they were doing is they were actually, in the course of a famine apparently that had come through, th these, these poor subsistence farmers had to leverage all of their property, all of their income sources to these officials to pay for the taxes that the officials were levying, to be able to it, just have enough food to feed their families. They didn't have enough. They said, we're, we don't even have enough to survive. And if you read verse 5, you'll see that some of these families actually had to sell their own children into slavery in order to survive. So this is a situation that is very dire. There's injustice that's happening. And Nehemiah hears about this. And he hears that it's, it's this Jewish community in which they're God's chosen people. These are God's people. And, and yet God's people are oppressing these other part of God's people. And Nehemiah, he's angry. And his, his heart is a heart that wants to stand up and defend those who are being oppressed and those who are impoverished. And so he does. And he, and he speaks out against those officials and those noblemen. And he's not just like posting on Facebook. He's talking with them. right? So he's telling, hey, this is wrong. And then it says, he presses further in verse 9. Then I pressed further, he says. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day. 
and repay the interest you charge when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So Nehemiah, just, he just confronts them face to face. He says, this isn't right. And not only is it not right, it's against what God wants for his people. He says, look, these other nations are going to be looking at us, and they're going to mock us because God's people are oppressing God's people. He says, this is wrong. Let's walk in fear of God. He says, and not only that, give them, give them their stuff back. The stuff that you've taken, the stuff that you hold, all those deeds that you've been able to leverage away from them, give it all back. And not only that, give back the interest that you've charged as well. And if you keep reading through the chapter, the nobles and the officials, they do it. They do it. They respond to Nehemiah's challenge. They're convicted by God's spirit. They restore all of the stuff that they have taken. They, 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 they respond. They know that this is a part of what God wants for them. And as Nehemiah talks to them, he says, look, this is going to do a couple of things. It's going to raise the sense of unity. It's going to raise the sense of camaraderie in Jerusalem because Nehemiah, remember, he has this leadership challenge. He's trying to get the whole city to be a part of this work of rebuilding. And so this is important to him. And he challenges those officials. He says, look, you don't want to be a part of the oppression. You want to be part of the liberation. You, you don't want to be a part of extending poverty. You want to be a part of extending opportunity. And the, the reason why the nobles and the officials are convicted, why they respond so clearly, is because this is a part of what God wants for all of his people. Right? This is already deep within your heart as well. We all want to be a part of something heroic. We all want to be a part of doing something that matters, of standing up for the voiceless, of, of including the marginalized and the disenfranchised. This strikes very deeply into the heart of God's people, and it always has. Friends, I, I just want to tell you, it's, it's almost universal. This is why millions and millions of kids last Tuesday dressed up in superhero costumes. Right? They want to be heroic. This resonates with us. This is why Tony Stark became Iron Man, right? To defend the powerless. This is like Hulk smash oppression, right? And, and so we go after that. Like what Nehemiah is doing is like Bruce Wayne to the bat signal. He is, he's a, a responding and making a difference on behalf of the impoverished and the oppressed. And it resonates deep within our hearts as well. Let me give you one example where I know this rings true for almost all of us. If you are here and you are a mom or a dad, if you're a parent, you know that, that this desire to be heroic on behalf of your children is just a beautiful thing. I, I remember when my firstborn arrived on the scene, when my daughter Alexandra was born, something awoke within me. This desire to be heroic on her behalf I mean, I was ready to, to face dragons. I would stand down armies. I mean, I was ready to, you know, you shall not pass, you know, to anyone who would want to create harm for her. I just, I just wanted to be heroic for her. And now she's, she's almost 18 years old. So what does this look like? Well, it looks like I, I put gas in her car when she's not looking, you know. I, I, I change the oil in her car. I, I, I try to make sure that there's a pathway for future schooling and, and you know, opportunity for her future. And, and it just that desire to be there to guide and to protect and to nurture and, and to make sure that there's safety and there's hope and there's a future. And I know so many of you, you already feel like that on behalf of maybe your children or other people in your life. There was one time when I failed to be a hero. 
and I, I couldn't do these things for someone. And, and I've shared this story before. It's a sad story. It's the story of my first visit to Kenya. And we were over there. We were doing work with street kids while we were there. And I remember asking the missionary who was hosting us about the, the way that all of these street kids would get hooked on glue. And I said, well, what is the, what's the long-term impact of glue on these kids' lives? And the missionary answered and said, there is no long-term that most of these kids, they, 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 the glue just blows through their brain cells and they kind of zombifies them. And by the time that they're late teens, they end up wandering out in the street and so many just get hit by a bus. And sure enough, the last day that I was in Kenya, I was on the sidewalk, a bunch of our party was kind of doing some last minute shopping and, and I hear the squeal of brakes. A bus was trying to avoid a child and I heard a thud and I ran out into the street I was the first one responding to the street boy who had been struck and we called to the other members of our team I was traveling with a bunch of doctors and nurses on a medical mission so they all came to administer aid but they gave me a job I was to hold pressure on the gash in this young boy's neck and so I did I just I just held pressure over this gaping wound and I remember looking at his face, his wild, terrified eyes. And I spoke kind words over him, calm words. I prayed over him again and again and again, just lifting him up to Jesus. And we were waiting for the ambulance to arrive. It arrived over an hour later. It was a van with a, a folding table in the back. And friends, that was that young boy's last day on earth. I couldn't be a hero to him. I, I, I failed to be heroic to him, to save him, to provide a hope and a future, an opportunity for his life here on earth. And, and yet I just want you to understand that there are over 400 kids living on the streets of Kitali right now that we can be heroic for. That it is an opportunity for us to make an impact, for us to change the trajectory of their life. And What's interesting is that this falls so clearly in line with what Jesus challenges his people to. You know, Jesus is the one who, who tells the story of, of the people who are, who are a part of God's kingdom. They're the ones who care for the marginalized and the disenfranchised, the prisoner and the poor. They're, they're the ones who, who reach out and who try to make things different when they can. And, and then Jesus even goes further. He says, and every time, every time you do that, he says, it's like you're doing it to me. And then he says the flip side is also true, that any time you refuse, any time you ignore, any time you don't reach out and care, when you have the opportunity to, it's me you're missing out on. That's what he says in Matthew 25, 45. It says, and he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Friends, when we re refuse to meet a, a tangible need, a need that we have the capacity to engage on. When we refuse that, he says, we're refusing him. And I would just venture to reckon none of us want to be on the side of refusing Jesus. That's just not what our hearts yearn for. We want to be a part of the thing that Jesus is calling us into. Proverbs 14.21 says, It's criminal to ignore a neighbor in need, but compassion for the poor, what a blessing. 
And so I just want to summarize the first half of chapter 5. The first half of chapter 5 is Nehemiah hearing about this problem and then standing to defend the cause of the impoverished and the oppressed. It's a heart issue. His heart is absolutely for those who are being oppressed, those who are in poverty. And so that's what the whole first half of that chapter is about, is what he can do to change the, the situation there in Jerusalem. And then the second half of the chapter, Nehemiah kind of goes into this long example of what it looks like as he sets the example for how not to be a burden, for how to be a proactive help in making sure that Jerusalem continues to thrive. And so that's the second fill-in that we see from this chapter, the challenge to set an example. So it's not just that we need to defend the case or the cause of the orphan and the impoverished and the oppressed, but we're to set an example for those who are impoverished or oppressed. And he goes into great detail, and I really would challenge you to read through all of that chapter as he talks about, these are the choices I made. These are the ways I refuse to be a burden. These are the ways I refuse to take taxes of the oppressed. I, I refuse that because I didn't want to perpetuate this cycle that would continue poverty or oppression in Jerusalem. And it's actually a great thing what Nehemiah is doing, this idea of how I live, he wants to show all the other nobles and officials, this is how I want you to live as well. Sets the example so that they will follow his example and not be a burden on the people. And it actually is a great question, and I would just posit this for all of us, that anytime you're deciding on what to do, not to do, you're making a choice about your behavior, you might want to just run it through this filter of, if every single person did this, what would the world be like? If you're ever trying to figure out, how, if, should I do this, should I not do this, if you ask, run it through this filter, if everybody did this thing I'm deciding on, would it be a better world or a worse world? And so this is actually a philosophical principle. Some of you took philosophy 101 in college. You might remember this. Immanuel Kant is the German philosopher who came up with this idea. Some of you re refer to this as the categorical imperative. Others of you know it as the law of universalizability, which is a weird word, but he's German. He always likes to shove words together. So they do in Germany. Uh, and I've, I've lived there, I know. No, I'm just, I, actually, I have lived there, but I don't know. I'm just guessing. It was a dumb joke. I'm sorry. Here, here's the, here is the actual part of, of his law. He says, act only according to that maxim, whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. This idea of what I'm doing now, can I will this to be a universal law? And so you go back to Nehemiah's Jerusalem, well, the people who were oppressing the poor, what if it was a universal law? Everyone who could get away with oppressing anyone, do it. And what kind of world does that create? If you can possibly get away with oppressing or exploiting somebody else, do it. And, and, and everyone does that. And what kind of world? Well, it's negative and it's cutthroat. And it's dog-eat-dog, dog, and it's a ruthless kind of a world. It's vicious. It's an everyone-look-out-for-themselves-above-everything-else kind of a, of a world, and that's not the world that Jesus is calling us to be a part of. But on the flip side, what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah defends the, the cause of the oppressed and the impoverished. Ne Nehemiah is the one who says, not only that, but I'm going to make choices that will not only make me not a burden, but actually out of my own pocket, I'll contribute to the betterment of everyone else. And, 
And if everybody did that, if everyone stood on behalf of the impoverished and the oppressed and everyone contributed out of their sense of means in order to raise the level of opportunity for everyone, what kind of a world would that be? It's a better world. And it's a world where there is more opportunity and there is more freedom for all and there is more camaraderie and unity, etc. And, and so that's kind of the, the question is, what does it look like to set an example? That's the, the example that Nehemiah sets. And then finally, and if you do these things, if you stand and defend the oppressed, if you set the example, the third fill in here, and God will remember you with favor. He will remember you with favor. And, and this is what Nehemiah writes in, at the end of the chapter, Nehemiah 5.19. It says, remember me with favor, O God, for all I have done for these people. And he's recognizing that God's gracious promises that he will care for the needs of his people, of those who walk with him. And oftentimes this happens where God provides materially, where God provides economically, but always God provides spiritual blessing that truly enriches. In other words, God will always bless. That is his heart, and that's the promise. God will always bless. Look at this verse from Hebrews chapter 6. It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget. Can you circle that phrase? He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. You see, this verse says if you help his people, if you continue to help his people, you're showing love not just to these people. You're showing love to God. And the verse says, and God will not forget that. God will remember you with favor. And so all of these, of all the chapters that we've studied so far, this chapter is the one that is so incredibly in line with what God is calling us to do as we help orphans and street kids get off the streets and into homes through this thing we're calling the Katali Project. And right now, you need to know that you are a part of a great church that does exactly what Nehemiah does, that these are things that we take seriously. We're asking all of you to take a step of faith and to join us in this good work. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans. And so the first step in all of this that Nehemiah does is, is his heart is right, right? He has a heart to defend the, the oppressed and the impoverished. He has a heart to care for those who are left out. So here's the first step for us. The first step is just developing that heart. And I love what the verse is, said that we just read, learn to do good. We can learn this. We can develop our heart around this. We can, we can make sure that we're challenging our heart to be in such a place where we actually do care, where we don't live out of apathy or just self-interest, but we actually do care that the needs of others around us, we, that, that matters to us, right? We've developed that heart to defend the impoverished and the oppressed. And then the second step in all this is then we actually do something about it. And that's what Nehemiah does. He sets the example, and that's a challenge for you and I, is that we would actually do something about it. That, that and not just we would stand and speak good words for those who are oppressed or impoverished, or that we would speak out against injustice, but rather that we would put some muscle behind it as well. Um, in business terms, this is where we put our money where our mouth is, that, that we actually care about making a difference in the world. And my challenge for us in this is not only that, but I would just challenge you to not only participate in this vision, but that you would set an example. 
In other words, this is such a good thing that we're up to as a church. This is so in line with the heart of Jesus. I mean, I would love it if this would be like a, man, my church is up to really great stuff in the world, that, that you have the Katali Project brochure on your desk, or that you're having these conversations with your extended family, because this is a beautiful thing. And so set the example in your world and, and where it is that, that you have influence. And I would so, say this, Overlake, that as it comes to the Catali Project, you need to know that, that I am absolutely in this thing with you. My wife Jody and I, we want to be a part of it, and we are going to be a part of it. And, and just as far as like setting the example, I want you to know I would love for everyone to be a part of it as Jody and I are a part of it. In other words, what it looks like is we're making a commitment for a one-time gift for the startup costs of the Catali Project, and then we're committed to maintaining a monthly gift as well so that the ongoing work can continue. And I'd love to encourage all of you to join us in this. By the way, I just want to give you a quick peek behind the curtain. You know, if you've read through our brochure, you know our, our startup costs are about $250,000. Um, we haven't even made an ask yet, but uh, Pastor Dan on our staff has already received $45,000 in gifts. We're about 20% of the way toward our goal. We haven't even made the ask yet. Friends, that's, that's God doing good work in our hearts. Can I get it? Yeah, exactly. Can you get a cheer for that? That's amazing. And, uh, and, and then the challenge is, of course, whenever we bring up a project like this, um, there is some temptation that w people would just shift their giving. So instead of giving to Overlake General Fund, they would just choose to shift that and, and give to the project as well because it's new and fun and, and wonderful, and, and I get that. But let me tell you why it's important to continue to support Overlake and the General Fund as well as contribute to the Katali Project. It's real simple, and you've heard me talk about this before. It's that, friends, um, if we don't support the work of God and the mission of God at Overlake Christian Church, th there is no mission of God at Overlake Christian Church. That we are it, that we are the contributors. We're the ones who are in this work together. Uh, I've shared this before. There is no sort of denominational head back in Detroit that cuts checks to us. In fact, if there's anything, we should cut checks to Detroit probably. That, 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 that there's, that's, that, that's not how this works, that, that, that we are the family of God supporting the mission of God at Overlake. And if, if we don't support the mission of God at Overlake, there is no mission of God here. So that's why I, I would just have you kind of think about these things a little more carefully. And, and then I want to share a story with you. And, and, and this is a true story. And it's a story where Jesus gets all the glory. But I, just so you know, I really wrestled with whether or not to share this story with you. So we'll, we'll come back to it. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Gary gave a message and he quoted a guy named R.G. Letourneau. And R.G. Letourneau was this incredible, generous, philanthropic man. He had made riches developing earth movers and steam shovels for construction projects. And one of this guy's quotes, as he was this incredible philanthropist, what he said was, I shovel it out, God shovels it back, but God has a bigger shovel. Now, this was a man who made shovels for a living. Right? He knew about shovels, and, and this was his, his work on generosity. And, and I've always believed that, and, and many of you know this story because I've shared this when we've gone through stewardship series before, but my wife Jody and I, we have, we have been um, tithers for our whole relationship. And, and it wasn't always the case for me. And when we started dating in 1994, uh, I was not tithing. 
I, I was a youth pastor at the time. I made about $800 a month. And instead of tithing, what I would do is just fund the ministry. If, if youth ministry needed anything, I would just buy it out of my pocket. I'd take kids out, you know, to, to, to dinner. We'd take groups to dinner and stuff. And I would just write the check out of my own pocket. And, and, and that's just what I did. And, and when my wife and I started getting serious, when Jody and I started getting serious in our dating, she goes, she goes, no. Um, that's insane. She said, uh, you only make $800. That meal you just bought everyone, that was $800. Like, this is not going to work for us. She said, you tithe. You tithe like the Bible actually tells you to do. And then you let the church that you're tithing to fund the ministry that it's hiring you to do. That's how this thing works. And I said, oh, okay, because I loved her. And uh, I said, great. And, and so we did that. And, and God has always provided and, and, and so that was just a part of our, now I just, I want to be super frank with you that there are many areas of my life where I'm still working out, you know, sanctification, God's still working on me. There's a lot of stuff I still wrestle with and struggle with. And I totally, I need your prayer. So please pray for me. Um, but this one issue, like this was a set issue. So early on, we made this decision and that's how we lived our life and still do. Okay. That's not the story. Here's the story. Take, take a breath. Here's the story. Earlier this spring, um, I was paying bills, and, and I was doing our giving online. That's how we do our giving. And I was just having a moment with Jesus. We happen to be in this season where after a long time for, of Jody being at home and taking care of our kiddos in the home, she just went back to work. And so this spring, she just started getting a regular paycheck for the first time. And so I was doing the giving online. And what I did was I, I gave my normal amount that I give out of my paycheck, 10%, straight to Overlake. And then as I was just was kind of processing, I just decided to give 20% on Jody's paycheck. And I didn't tell anyone. It was just like a little game. I just, I mean, I was with the Lord in that moment, but I don't know that he told me to. I just was like, oh, let's just see what happens. So we just, I just gave 20% on Jody's income and 10% on mine, like I, like I normally do. And then we do other gifts as well, like World Vision and Eastside Academy and now the Catelli Project. And, and so just doing that. Well, I did that through the spring and through the summer and even through the fall. And then something happened. I was given 20% of Jody's income, and God doubled Jody's salary. This is a true story. I don't think you're appropriately shocked right now. It was so amazing to me, and the reason why I wrestled with whether or not to share this, you know, those of you who've been around Overlake for years, you know this is like the first time I've ever shared a story like this. The reason why I share this is because I know that there are many of you here, you don't give as a part of your faith journey. And I would love for you to experience the blessing and the adventure that comes when you actually start trusting Jesus with your finances as well as with your eternity. It's just so beautiful when you get on that road. And the second reason that I share it is because of the example that Nehemiah set it said, I know that there are many of you who are faithful in your regular giving to the mission of God at Overlake Christian Church, but you doubt that there's enough bandwidth for you to give to Overlake and to be a part of this Katali project. And I would just say, why would you want to limit God? Why do you want to shut the door on some kind of a cool blessing that God might have for you as he meets you in this journey? Friends, this is where our faith becomes real. This is where our faith becomes exciting. So I, I definitely want to encourage you in that. 
And what I want to do right now is I want to invite uh, my friend, Pastor Dan Hamer up. Dan's on our staff, so Dan, why don't you come on up here. Dan is the, really the heart and the architect behind the, the ministry that we've got going on in Katali right now. So, so Dan has been a friend of mine for 20 years. We've served side by side. I've served with Dan and his wife, Kathleen, for about 20 years together, first in California and now up here. And what Dan has done, it's because of Dan and Dan's commitment in this region of Katali that we have been able to, to drill over 90 freshwater wells, that over 500 uh, subsistence farmers have been trained in agricultural practices and, and best practices, that kind of a thing, and, and really even the Katali project as well. So would you please welcome my friend Dan as he comes to share with us today. All right, brother. Well, listen, um, we've been talking about the Catelli Project, and what I'd really love to do is I'd really love to, for you to just give a picture. What is it? What is the Catelli Project? Well, the Catelli Project is really the culmination of 20 years of this church being invested in trying to be on a search for how we can help the children of the world who are homeless, who live alone and die alone on the streets of the world. Um, and I, and I would characterize it as, the, in Nehemiah terms, as an ache that this church has had for these children. Right. <clears throat> for our family, our journey and our ache began with a photo that Mike showed uh, from his first trip to Kenya uh, 17 years ago that has been on our refrigerator literally ever since to remind us to pray for these children. Yeah, that's great. Well, what does it look like? What, give us a little bit of what is the Catali Project? Well, the, the big idea is that we are guiding children off the streets in, through a rehabilitation process into a safe bed and then back home to families. So it's a, um, what we're actually doing in, in the project is we are replicating a program that Overlake has been a part of for the last seven or eight years uh, that has successfully taken 1,800 children off the streets, taken them through a Christ-centered rehabilitation process where they've yeah. dealt with the glue addiction issues, mm -hmm. they've gotten kids early enough before they've started those processes yep. and habits, and we've returned them to family members, extended family members, or someone else in their community who is caring for them, and they're living as a family member out in the community now. Right. Um, what, does, what does it actually look like? Like how many staff members are required? And, and kind of talk about the specifics there. For the replication to be successful in Katali, we are projecting a staff of 43. Mm -hmm. um, and of those 43, only two are Americans. Uh, the rest of them are all Kenyans. We're big believers in empowering Kenyans to help Kenyans care for the children in their community. Right. So the, the two Americans that are involved in this project are completely behind the scenes, and they're not the ones, you know, that the staff consists of outreach workers who are out on the street meeting the kids, right. caring for them, trying to invite them in. Uh, at the rehabilitation center, we have house parents, we have cooks, we have security guards, we have right. teachers, we have counselors, and then we also have a, a team of social workers who are out right checking these kids' stories, trying to find out where they're from, investigating like the, the video showed, um, trying to find where these kids, uh, where, they're, where they're from and where's a safe place for them to return to. That's right. They actually, um, 
this service hasn't seen that video yet, but you will see a video, and not only that, but in the video are the two Americans that are going to be on the ground putting this team together and working that team. Speaking prophetically. Prof that's right. You spoke it into existence in that's a few right. moments. Yeah. Um, and part of that is that's a huge staff, but in order to achieve a tipping point where we can truly make a difference for these kids on the street because... You know, we, we, if you just take one kid off the street, he's followed by another one right behind him. If we're not making a big enough impact that we're both slowing down the kids coming to the street but clearing out the, the kids that are currently living there, then we're not going to make any kind of a permanent lasting change in the problem. So we're, we're, we're tackling it in a big way, but, but, but we, and we know that that is how you have to do it because we've seen the success in the first city. In That's right. And, and we've also seen how a mediocre response yields very mediocre results. Right. So, okay. Well, what is the goal in, in all of this? Well, the goal is quite simply to return children to families. Uh, we feel that's God's plan. We know that's where they're best cared for, where they're best uh, helped to become the, the people that God's created them to be. So during this whole process of this quest that we've been on to try and figure out how to help these kids, we, we've learned some very important things. And one of the things that we learned is that um, the orphanages and the streets are filled with children who have family, extended family, or members of their community that are willing to care for them if you can give them the proper support. And that's the key to this project is that we are providing the support both to the children that are in the program and in, the, in this process, and also to the caregivers who are ultimately going to be caring for them, the family members or extended family members. Yeah, we believe there's a home for every child. Exactly, yeah. and we have 1,800 children as proof of that, that we have found That's right. homes for every one of those children. That's right. So, so how, how is this unique, Dan? How, how does this project, what's the hope in all of it? Well, first of all, um, this is not the first program to try and reintegrate kids back to families. But I have done a lot of study on this, and I'm absolutely convinced that it has the most extensive process of preparing children to return home and also to prepare the families to receive those children when they do return home. No one has that extensive of a, of a preparation process as well as the follow-up, which is key to this. And that's the key to a lot of that staffing, our social workers, and we're connecting with churches in those communities where the kids are reintegrated to, to partner with them to make sure the kids are, are, are well cared for and it is a safe place where we're returning them to. And no one has these kind of results. 1,800 children, you're not going to find that anywhere. It's a success that's unprecedented in anything I've ever studied, right. and we, we, we want to replicate that. And we believe that this might actually be a paradigm shift in general, just as, you know, maybe 150 years ago, churches were going over and building orphanages everywhere. Now our, our hope is that this actually maybe shifts that paradigm a bit, right? Exactly. The this is not just about Katali. This is about expanding this model all around right. the world. Mm -hmm. and, and we are convinced that exactly that will happen, that this shift in the paradigm will, will take children and empty the orphanages and empty the streets and put these children back into families where we think they belong. That's right. Dan, thank you for sharing with us today.
So there are, there are four parts to any successful vision, and we believe that Overlake has all four of these in the Katali project. So if you want to write these down really quickly, these are, this is true for any leadership movement you'll ever lead or, or be a part of. The first or the, the four parts of a successful vision, number one, is there has to be a problem, a problem to solve. And certainly, friends, you've, you've heard our hearts on this, that the problem is that these kids are on the streets, and on the streets, these young kids, elementary school age and younger, they're being beaten, and they're begging for food, and they're becoming addicted to glue, and this is a situation that is untenable. They have no future and no hope, and this is not acceptable to God's people. The second thing you need is not just a problem. You need a solution, and the solution is home-placed and hope-filled. We absolutely believe that there is a home for every child, that God already has provided a home for every one of these kids. We are just going to help find that home, identify it, and prepare the child for it. Number three, for a successful vision, you need a reason. You need a reason to go after the solution. You can't just have a problem and a solution. You've got to have a reason to pursue that solution. And the reason is that this is God's work. This is what God's heart has always been about, and this is what God's people have always resonated with. This is what makes God's people set apart from all of the other cultures of the world throughout history. In Psalm 68.6, it says, God sets the lonely in, can you say this word together? Families. God sets the lonely in families. It doesn't say institutions. It doesn't say uh, in, in orphanages, it doesn't say, you know, in state-sponsored, anything. Like, God sets the lonely in families, and so this is God's work. That's why we want to be about it. And the fourth thing that every vision has, it's not just a problem and a solution. It's not just a reason. It's the reason now is the time. That now is the time. And the answer for us is that it's, it's this conjunction of God-ordained movements that we've got partners on the ground right now in Agape. We've got a model that's successful right now through the city of Kusumu. We have personally been involved in Kitali for the last 17 years. There have been um, all kinds of relationships developed in all of the churches, in all of these surrounding villages. There have been, like I said, 90 plus wells dug, hundreds of farmers that have been educated and provided for, that there's already been this soil that has been tilled. And so now is the perfect time for us to make this difference and to end this problem on the streets of Katali. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to have every single person grab this envelope that was in your handouts. If you would just go ahead and grab this, and if you for some reason don't have it in your handout, there's one in the seat back in front of you as well, but just grab this, and this is the, the envelope that is how we participate in this thing together. So I really, right now, I just want to have everyone grab it, just take a look at it. Um, by the way, if you're here and you are a first-time visitor with us, we are so thankful that you're here. I'm really glad that you're here because you're getting like a front row view into the heart of this incredible church that you have wandered into. It's a beautiful heart. We want to be about the things that Jesus is about, and, and that's what you're seeing right now. 
But let me tell you this. If, if you're just visiting with us, if this is just your first time, I, I really don't want you to feel any pressure to participate financially in this. Instead, what we would rather have you do is on your way out, stop by the info desk, and we want to give you something, just a gift, of our way of saying thank you for being with us today. Actually, this part right now really is for all of you who are a part of the Overlake family. Overlake is your church home that, that we are already on this journey together. And so just take a few moments right now, fill out the top part of that. It's just your name, uh, some of the information that, that's just you know, going to connect you with, hey, this is who I am, this is my family, this is what we want to be a part of. And then if you look down on, on the lower half, you'll see my commitment. And there's one line that says, today's gift. And so what you need to know is that today's gift, that, that first gift that is given, it's going to go towards the startup costs. So you've already heard me share that the startup costs for this project are about $250,000. Most of that is going to go toward the rehabilitation facility. And what the facility will look like, it's very similar to what uh, a, 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 an orphanage might look like in your minds. It'll have a place where there'll be beds and, and house parents to take care of the kids while they're staying at this place. There'll be a cafeteria and a place where food is cooked and then served to these children. So by the way, you're talking about kids living on the streets. Now they're going to have safe bed. Now they're going to have safe uh, meals, good nourishing meals. And then there'll be classrooms. And in the classrooms, there'll be education but also that's where the rehabilitation takes place. So they'll learn how to make it work in a family, what it looks like to actually succeed in a home when they're placed back in a, in a home with a family member. So all of that will go from that startup cost, and again, that's on the line of today's gift. That would be like a one-time gift that we're, you'd say, oh yeah, I don't want to be a part of that and make a one-time gift. And then the line below is the monthly gift. And so that's where we're looking at what does it look like to maintain and sustain this ministry over the long haul. The estimated costs for this are 14000 a month. And so, again, just to share, my wife and I are going to be a part. We want to give a one-time gift, and then we want to be a part of maintaining a monthly gift as well. And I would just invite you, just wherever it is that God's calling you, please be a part of this as well. And again, you can continue filling this out. I, I want to say a couple other things here. If you're here and you happen to be here without your spouse, um, for whatever reason, they're not here, here, here's the deal. You can take this envelope home and have a prayerful conversation about how it is that God's stirring you to participate in this. I, I would hate for, for just one member of a family to make a decision and then that be a, a cause of tension or conflict. So please make sure you have that conversation with your spouse. You're welcome to take this home, pray over it. You can bring it back next week. And then the second thing I want to say about this is, is really our prayer is that all of us participate together. We've done a number of campaigns over the years that I've been uh, the pastor here. I want you to know that they, I, I promise you, God does amazing things when all of the people of God work together to accomplish the vision that God gives us. And so our prayer is that everyone participates in some way, shape, or form. I, I want to focus on this verse for a second from Luke 12, 48. These are the words of Jesus, and it says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. He says, Everyone who has received much, much will be required from them. Now, I am friends with so many of you, and, and I know that we've had conversation, the situation of your life, maybe as you're looking at your bank account statement, 
the word much is not a word that comes immediately to mind. Right? I, I know that for some of you, when you're paying your bills, the, 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 you're not thinking, oh, I have so much, right? That there's so much left over. I have all of this, this much, much, much surplus kind of a thing. I, I get it. The word much doesn't come to our minds all that often. So, so let me suggest that for the word much, you exchange it for the word more. To, to whom more has been given, more is required. Because I think that we could all be quite honest in our assessment that even though we might not have much, we have more than that street kid. Even though we might not have much, we can leverage the more that we do have in order to provide much for that street kid. So I I would just have you kind of noodle on that. And, And again, all I want is for you to listen to what it is that Jesus is stirring and participate according to what he is prompting you. If all of us live in obedience with the Lord, I promise you this need will get buried and we'll be able to do this great thing for Jesus. Okay? Again, let's go back to Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? He defends the oppressed and the impoverished. Overlake, that's what we're doing. What does Nehemiah do? He sets the example of what it looks like to live in such a way that it makes a difference. Friends, that's exactly what we're doing. And finally, what's the result? God remembers this with favor because that's what he does when those of us who are called his children go after the things that he puts on our hearts. So why don't you do this? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to say thank you for the way that you do meet us exactly where we are, that you know us and you love us, that you pour your grace and your mercy down over our lives, that you provide for us, that that we are even here worshiping you freely because of how you have intersected in our lives in some way, shape, or form through the years. For all of this, we are thankful. We're thankful for your provision. We're thankful for your blessing. We're thankful for your love, Lord Jesus. And right now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would wrap us up in your arms, that you would allow us just to hear your nudge, your leading, your prompting. And all I ask, Lord, is that you would find our hearts obedient to you. Whatever it is that you're calling us to do, my prayer is that you would then give us the courage and the capacity to do it. We love you so much, Jesus. We know that this is something that rings true. It's one of those, it's one of those notes that rings throughout Scripture and throughout history and into our hearts today because this is what breaks your heart. The idea of young children, children that are on the streets, children that are without hope and without homes. And, and Jesus, we know that we can make a difference here. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm.